You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Hannah Coates from the University of Leeds. Her paper was entitled Beyond Faction, Sir Francis Walsingham's Irish Patronage, circa 1574 to 1590. In this paper, I want to explore the priorities and uh, methods of, uh, of the distant English governors of Ireland uh, through the patronage activities of one of uh, the uh, most senior Elizabethan uh, councillors, Francis Walsingham. Um, although out of fashion in work on English politics in this period, uh, the idea of faction, the existence of coherent mutually opposed groups, uh, particularly at court, has remained part of some analyses of events in, in Ireland. Um, in this paper, I want to go kind of past those divisions to talk more about um, what Walsingham, to try and kind of understand what Walsingham thought he was doing when he meddled in um, Irish affairs. And I hope to illustrate this particularly through an examination of his activities in the province of Connacht in the 1570s and 1580s. In 1573, Walsingham was made a Privy Councillor and one of Elizabeth I's principal secretaries. And during the 1570s and 1580s, he sometimes seemed to have acted as a kind of Irish expert at the Elizabethan court uh, in relation to both patronage and policy. He seems to have been trusted by Elizabeth as an arbiter of, of Irish patronage. Uh, on some occasions, she recommended uh, suits to him uh, by her own mouth. Um, and uh, he certainly exercised a lot of influence over appointments and preferments, especially relating to the, the garrison or military appointments. Uh, and he also had a strong command of Irish personnel and events through his position as secretary, which gave him command of the royal correspondence and the conciliar agenda. Uh, so this made him an important ally for those serving in Ireland, as was acknowledged by uh, Lord Deputy Sir Henry Sidney, who noted that as a result of Austin's position, uh, I and such others of my sort, as Her Highness in remoter places, must resort to you in courses of hers. In a uh, 1989 PhD thesis, thesis on Walsingham, um, which is sort of the first, or the sort of um, yeah, the first scholarly treatment of Walsingham's policy since the 1920s, uh, Mitchell Lehman saw Walsingham as having a monopoly on Irish affairs of the English court, but also as being just one competitor in, fa- in a factional struggle, which might seem to be he was trying to have his, his cake and eat it. Uh, and Lehman belonged to perhaps the last generation of Elizabethan historians who were convinced that factional conflict was a characteristic of Elizabethan court. Following compelling arguments made by scholars like Patrick Collinson and Simon Adams, uh, which have emphasised the shared worldview of Elizabethan political actors, the subsequent orthodoxy among historians since the 1980s has been that the Elizabethan court was largely free from a factional conflict, but not ne- well, from faction, but not necessarily conflict between individuals until the 1590s. In the historiography of late 16th century Ireland, however, faction often retains its central role in political and patronage decisions. Um, um, this is key in Lehman's thesis about Walsingham's Irish policy, 
and I think is also present in uh, Kieran Brady's work on the Viceroys, uh, where um, the working out of rivalries at the English court is uh, blamed for sudden changes in personnel and policy. Uh, in this account, the viceroys or the deputies were vulnerable to the enemies in Ireland who made common cause with a rival faction at, at court in Westminster or, or London um, to disgrace the deputies who were judged not against objective standards but according to the position of their faction at the time. Um, but there are, I think, um, from looking at the kind of state papers uh, on Ireland um, for, for my, my thesis research, um, some problems with factional interpretations like, like Lehman's of, of Irish policy and patronage. I think not the least of these is the fact that it oversimplifies what are often complex events and decisions. Uh, and I think it also kind of, kind of lets us off the hook in examining motivations and uh, policy in more detail, which is what I want to do today. Uh, so, as well as advocating the use of force for the reform of Ireland on some occasions, uh, Walsing was prepared to secure the sort of pacification and quietness of the island uh, by any means available. They did this in response to increased unrest in the island as a whole from the mid to late 1970s, and particularly in Connacht, the area over which he could exert the most control, as I'll uh, explain in a minute. Uh, he also wanted to remove uh, distractions to enable the English regime to focus on other enemies and other problems, uh, particularly in mainland Europe. For example, as he explained to the Lord Justices in 1583, the news that somewhat may be attempted against us this next summer. Uh, made Walsingham wish that all things were compounded in that realm so that they could focus on sort of other threats. However, Walsingham's efforts to quieten Ireland through patronage and securing the cooperation of key individuals did not address underlying causes of the uh, problems he was trying to solve. Uh, so, uh, the western province of Connacht was of a special interest, interest to Walsingham due to its uh, comparative position um, and the resulting possibility it could be used as an invasion platform. Uh, and uh, an additional problem was the inability of the region's Earl, Richard Burke, the second Earl of Clamacard, to control his sons, who rebelled against the English government in 1576. So as a result of this, um, whilst he was careful to install his clients as presidents of the province, uh, firstly Nicholas Malvey and then um, Richard Bingham, uh, which in turn meant that he could exert greater control over this particular area of Ireland. Walsingham's attitude to Connacht and the policy he sought to pursue there were determined by the situation in, in the province itself, the situation in uh, Ireland more generally, and uh, the situations in England and beyond. So the dynamics of his policy could uh, change under uh, different kinds of, of pressures. Uh, so in the late 1570s and early 1580s, uh, he sought to patronise uh, Gaelic and Anglo-Irish individuals in Connacht attempting to extend English hegemony by giving these men a stake in the English regime, mediated through himself, uh, while still advocating violent repression of, uh, of some uh, instances of local unrest there. Over time, Martin came to adopt a more straightforwardly martial response to uh, unrest in the province, illustrated by his uh, defence of the behaviour of Bingham in the late 1580s. Uh, yeah. Which, which occurred in kind of the context of continued restlessness in the province um, and turbulence caused by the sort of passing of the Armada. Uh, so I think a good place to start analysing all this is with the appointment of, of Malby, uh, Watson Klein, as uh, I think the chief commander, first of all, of the province in 1576 and then president in 1579. Even before his appointment as president of Connacht, uh, which occurred at Walsingham's recommendation, 
Malby was closely tied to Walsingham, uh, rewarding the Secretary's support at court by providing something of a crash course in Irish politics in the early years of Walsingham's secretaryship. He sent a lot of news, very detailed reports on people, geography, events, uh, and opinion pieces as well. He didn't just report, he gave his opinion, kind of editorial uh, judgment, as well as requests for patronage and support. So Malby wasn't just a client, this was a, a two-way relationship. And Malby could even offer slightly patronising advice about what Walsingham did with his money. So very much a two-way relationship. Uh, and he had a, Malby had a special place in Walsingham's network. Uh, he was central in bringing new figures in and keeping old figures in the loop. And this centrality had its own benefits for Malby. Uh, in 1580, he claimed uh, that it was the general opinion here in Connacht uh, that I dwell so far in your honour's favour that any man shall speed well that cometh recommended from me, if, if they come to court or raise a, a, a suit at court. And he went on to acknowledge the benefits of this for himself, as his conviction doth increase my credit much. Uh, some of the men Malby recommended to Walsingham were Anglo-Irish or Old English or, or Gaelic-Irish, um, slightly broadening the ethnic base of Walsingham's network in Ireland. In 1582, for example, Malby recommended to Walsingham one uh, Roger O'Flaherty, a native of, of Connacht, uh, who apparently desires to serve at the English court to be the better instructed in civility, in Malby's words. And in 1585, uh, this, this Roger was describing himself as Walsingham's servant and confidently invoking his assistance in a dispute over inheritance with another branch of the family. Uh, Malby's recommendation of, of this individual on the grounds that he was very well bent to good behaviour, a matter rare among the name of the O'Flaherty's, suggests the prime motivation for Walsingham's willingness to accept such men into his household, because he, this, this guy served in Walsingham's household. Um, but of more significance in assessing Walsingham's overall motivations and intentions uh, are his relationships with the two branches of, of the Burks, the province who we heard a little bit about earlier. In 1576... Uh, Walsingham was worried that the rebellion of Ulick and John Burke in response to Lord Deputy Sidney's plans to impose composition would jeopardise whole, this whole scheme that they hoped to roll out across the whole of, of Ireland. Uh, their father, Richard, the second Earl of Clamricard, either could not or would not restrain his sons, and Walsingham encouraged Sidney to use severity to quell the rising. Uh, so, uh, against this background, many of Walsingham's correspondents, including Malby, stressed the loyalty to the crown of the junior branch of the Burks, the McWilliam Burks of Mayo, and particularly their leader, Ellen McWilliam. And uh, his loyalty to the English government of the province was so well established in 1579 that Malby recommended, whilst he accedes to his request to accept his only legitimate son, William, into his household, uh, which Walsingham accordingly did. So Walsingham took McWilliam's son, William, uh, into his, his household. And this promotion of uh, his legitimate heir, according to English law or English standards, was an important argument for Walsingham and the English government of William's willingness to dispose of his uh, patrimony along English lines of primogeniture, a strong English loyalty to the English crown. So um, you have kind of competing strategies. You know, severity uh, with the rebels, but promote their loyal relatives. So I think this is intended to, to sort of stick and carrot, encouraging loyalty to the English administration. Uh, the, the following year, so 1580, uh, William wrote to Walsingham uh, in Latin, thanking uh, the secretary for the fatherly affection with which he heard he was treating his son. Uh, but soon, uh, William was dead, and his children were competing among themselves over the succession to the lordship. 
Malby urged Walsingham to give your man, William, licence to come over to claim his inheritance, uh, which Walsingham duly did. So in April 1583, uh, William wrote to Walsingham, who he described as his assured loving master uh, from Connacht, that though he was in no peace with my brothers nor my kinsmen, Malby had appointed him Sheriff of Sligo, as Walsingham requested. Uh, in 1584, William asked Walsingham to write to Bingham, the new uh, president, to continue the favour that Malby had shown him. Uh, and later, William acknowledged that Bingham was my very good friend, for your honour's sake. And he also made a subsequent request of Walsingham, including that Walsingham write to the Lord Deputy and Bingham to ensure that he got a good share, uh, if or when they carved up uh, the, um, the uh, William Burke um, lands. Walsingham presumably intended for William to return to Connacht and assume the leadership of the uh, William Burkes, bringing this part of the province under the control of a uh, person he hoped would be anglicised and loyal. Uh, however, he grossly overestimated what William could achieve against his older, more established kinsmen. I think aspects of the strategy have echoes of kind of, um, of earlier Tudor policies, known as well as the surrender and regrant uh, type policies produced by Henry VIII's government, and I think in the early years of uh, Elizabeth's reign, where you're kind of playing off different branches of a, a family against each other. Uh, but in light of Elizabeth's general unwillingness to spend money and effort in Ireland, uh, Walsingham had to take this kind of initiative into his own hands, this is a private initiative, this patronage of, of uh, William Burke, for instance. Um, so yeah, he takes his initiative in his own hands, uh, seeking to extend English hegemony by rewarding loyalty and hoping to secure the harmony of the province in the future by ensuring that William Burke's lands were controlled by a friend of the regime. Uh, in addition, uh, the arrest and transport to London of the second Earl of Clanricard at sort of around the same time gave Walsingham another opportunity to uh, subdue uh, the province. Walsingham lent uh, the Earl assistance and money during his time in England after his release, and he gave advice about the Earl's approaches to Elizabeth. In 1580, uh, prior to the Earl's return to Ireland, Walsingham personally lent him the huge sum of £350, and it's on this occasion that Malby says, that's really not a good idea, we shouldn't have done that, uh, but it's too late. Uh, probably a condition of the loan was cooperation with Malby, as well as a promise to do all he could to end the rebellious behaviour of his sons. Uh, it was especially necessary to secure Clarence's compliance uh, while the Desmond Rebellion was still, still ongoing. Um, However, any efforts in this direction were curtailed by the Earl's death soon after his return to Ireland. He was succeeded as Earl by Ulick, his formerly rebellious son, who soon came to realise the benefits of cooperation with Malby. And the support that Ulick received from English councillors, especially Walsingham and Leicester, uh, and his claim to the earldom seems to have induced him to reconsider where his best interests lay, and he embarked on a new career as a staunch supporter of English administration and conduct and as a correspondent of Walsingham. Uh, the new Earl praised the work of Malby and Bingham in civilising the province, uh, and Malby in turn commended Ulick's conduct to Walsingham on several occasions, uh, praising the new Earl as a singular honest nobleman and the greatest embracer of civility, and the most desirous to do Her Majesty some acceptable service to recover his credit that ever I saw of any of the country birth. Uh, Malby's successor, Bingham, also commended him to Walsingham, uh, and Ulick professed to depend only and altogether on Walsingham's favour. His cooperation meant that it was less important to cultivate the William Burke's, uh, those we've seen whilst he continued to help William Burke uh, with Bingham's regime. 
Walsingham aimed uh, more widely than simply securing the loyalty of a powerful regional magnate to himself or even to the regime. Uh, this was a, a long-term plan. I think he's borne out by the fact that when uh, Ulrich sent his eldest son to England as a pledge for his good behaviour, sending him to the University of Oxford, it was on Walsingham he relied uh, to see him want nothing as becometh his degree or calling, uh, and even to pay for uh, his son's uh, bills and debts at the university. So I think Walsingham is seeking to uh, help raise these heirs in an in kind of English manner, attempting to secure an anglicised and presumably Protestant future uh, for the province, for, for Connacht, and uh, complementing the work of the presidents, his clients, Malby and Bingham, on the ground. In Connacht, Walsingham's uh, hegemonic initiatives ultimately founded on the inability of his protege William to assert control of William Burke's and on the inability of Walsingham himself to overcome his preference uh, for the new English, for the, the garrison and the members of the administration, uh, which resulted in him, him abandoning William Burke to the excesses of the president of the province, his client Bingham, in 1588-1589. This was the result of Walsingham's own prejudices and attitudes, which prioritised keeping Ireland quiet so that England could focus on other threats. And his courting of members of other ethnic groups was the, the uh, product of, of expediency. Though closely connected to the, the new English soldiers and administrators like Malby, who arrived in Ireland in the 16th century, Walsingham, as, as I've said, uh, also sought to expand English hegemony in Ireland by drawing into the administration or into kind of um, into government fingers, figures, not fingers, figures from the old English and Gaelic Irish communities. And this was designed to secure maximum support for the regime. Uh, by co-opting potentially disruptive individuals and thereby to address the threats of rebellion and invasion. Walsingham's broad principal objective was uh, keeping the island quiet, to minimise the danger of foreign invasion and to reduce pressures on uh, Elizabeth's coffers. And this is why, uh, when Bingham was investigated and challenged over his uh, conduct and conduct, Walsingham backed him to the hilt and had no hesitation in branding them at William Burke's, his early allies, uh, rebels. Uh, so long as Bingham kept the province quiet and cheap, Walsingham wasn't particularly interested in how he achieved it, uh, especially with uh, the other power card on his side. So colonisation, violence and patronage were all pressed into service in the hope of keeping Ireland quiet. Uh, sort of, um, certainly Walsingham's activities in Ireland, I think, are characterised by a lack of coherent policy with no great programme of reform. Um, and this ties into some recent work which has highlighted the fact that conciliation and coercion were not so much opposing parties, but two sides of the same coin, um, combined in different ways with different individuals to um, achieve their um, achieve slightly different ends. Walsingham did, did much of this kind of patronage and, and meddling um, on his own initiative, um, without direct orders from Elizabeth. Uh, and his behaviour in this context fits into the, the wider context of Walsingham's policy and political activities um, in that I think it illustrates that Walsingham saw himself as part of the state with his own powers and responsibilities and among these he numbered the need to secure the loyalty and cooperation of key individuals in Ireland uh, to, to the state and uh, conveniently mediated through himself. Factual interpretations I think obscure, would obscure some of these motivations and uh, simplify the personal relationships that, that Walsingham um, cultivated in Ireland, um, whereas uh, close attention to um, even Walsingham's correspondence, uh, I think, reveals the sort of messy reality of English-Irish policy and how much this was based on kind of opportunities as and when they arose, um, and 
generally quite, quite a kind of ad hoc way. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.